Hello listeners, will you allow me a minute to tell you about Pass Test? If you haven't used them yet, you should. They are a fantastic online resource with hundreds of questions and answers covering multiple medical exams, including the MRCS, MRCP and medical finals. I've used them lots and found the resource so useful, particularly the past papers for these exams. As a listener to the podcast, you lucky people get 15% off some of these subscriptions. So don't wait around. I mean, do until the end of the episode, but then go and get your access. Links and codes will be in the show notes. But before we get going, I'd also like to tell you about a really great resource that I've used for probably all my exams. It's Teach Me Surgery. It's a website covering all the topics you'd need to know. It's really easy to use and clear to follow. It goes through the topics in a logical and comprehensive manner and always finishes making it clinically relevant. Nearly all the content is free and I'd highly recommend adding it to your regularly used resources. Please find the link in the bio and check it out. Welcome to MRCS on the Move. Bowels, bones and backseat vibers. I'm your host, Naomi, but this is the podcast where you do the talking. Hi and welcome back to another episode of MRCS on the Move. How is everyone doing? I hope you've had a good day um, and I hope you are either looking forward to work or looking forward to getting home, (laughs) either one. Um, We're going to jump back in with Sam, Dr. Sam Williams, our cardiology expert. And moving on from our cardiac physiology last week, we're going to now talk about a more clinical subject of aortic stenosis. So, so yeah, he was really great this time, and I promise you, he's really great again. So stick with us and learn some things about about aortic stenosis. Enjoy. Anyway, right, let's move on to aortic stenosis. So talking about clinics, we're going to put ourselves in a pre-assessment clinic for a patient who's having a lap coli. You have to do a proper full assessment of him, which it does involve examining his chest. Um, and his heart so you hear a murmur um, you have a think from a, a rusty memory but you think it may be an ejection systolic murmur so I think you've heard it after S1 am I right <laughs> yeah um, so what could that represent Go for it, Sam. So, so uh, a systolic murmur, if, if you are confident enough to call it an ejection systolic murmur, there's a number of different things it could be. And I think it's, uh, I mean, the first thing, it depends on the demographic and age of the patient. But the most common ejection systolic murmur you're likely to hear is, is going to be aortic stenosis. Mm-hmm. And the alternative options are aortic sclerosis. Which is uh, which is another option, um, and there are, there are 
alternatives which are less likely, things like uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy can produce that. Something like pulmonary stenosis in a syndromic patient is vanishingly rare, and I wouldn't expect you to see that unless there was a typical uh, a typical syndromic appearance. So realistically, those are going to be the ones that are going to be most you're most likely to to get is aortic yeah. stenosis, aortic sclerosis, HCM if you're unlucky, and pulmonary stenosis is also an option. Okay, great. Um, so what is aortic sclerosis we'll go with first? Like I said, aortic sclerosis is, is, is one of the key differentials for an, an ejection systolic murmur. And, and in, in the elderly population, a vast majority of patients will have some calcification and some thickening of the aortic valve and the key difference between aortic sclerosis and aortic stenosis is that whilst there is some calcification and thickening of the valve and it may have some restricted opening that and likely also to have a, a murmur with that but critically there's no physiological obstruction to flow from the sclerosis so it, your flow is preserved but you still have some turbulent flow as a result of the thickening of, of the valve, which produces the murmur. Okay, so what is aortic stenosis in comparison? Pretty much most of the stuff I said about aortic sclerosis is that you've got a, a thickened, often calcified aortic valve leading to restricted opening of the valve and due to that you've got obstruction to flow out of the heart to the aorta and to the body. So that's the key difference is the impact of it, so the obstruction. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly right. And just before we go on to anything else, I know that we plugged my podcast at the, at the start as well, but yeah. one of the first episodes that I did was with a, a consultant <coughs> cardiologist who performs um, TAVI, transcatheter aortic valve, implantations at the Bristol Heart Institute and it's um, we we basically talk through aortic stenosis in uh, painstaking detail and um, if your listeners have a spare 45 minutes then feel free to listen to that as well but we talk through a lot of the stuff we're, we're going to be talking through in this section of, of this podcast as well yeah I'll um I'll you'll have to send me a link to that that episode and I'll put it in my show notes so, sure, no problem. <laughs> yeah. um, so uh, what are the pathophysiological and physiological consequences of aortic stenosis? So the, the pathophysiology, as, as we understand it, of aortic stenosis is, is, is very similar to that related to atherosclerosis, so coronary artery disease or peripheral vascular disease and the associated inflammatory response uh, affecting the valve um, when when this process uh, occurs we, we know that it's a it's a chronic process that develops over years and it can be slightly different and I think we're going to come on to talk about risk factors and um, uh, other conditions which will predispose people to aortic stenosis and uh, and so it's it's most common in, in those patients who have those typical cardiovascular risk factors. And there are a, a subset of patients who will get it at younger ages, and we'll come on to talk about that when we come to risk factors. In terms of 
physiological consequences. The obstruction to flow is really the key issue with AS. And what we know is that if you're obstructing flow out of the left ventricle, first of all, the workload, the preload of the left ventricle is going to be greater. Sorry, the afterload is going to be greater. The workload for the left ventricle is going to be harder. Yeah. When you have a, and then when you have a chronically overloaded left ventricle, one of the physiological consequences, you can end up with left ventricular hypertrophy, which we see often in these patients, both on echo and you can see that reflected on an ECG with left axis deviation. And then eventually over a chronic course, the workload can become so great that the left ventricle starts to fail. And then we see patients suffering with heart failure symptoms and a, reje uh, a reduction in their ejection fraction on echo. So those are probably the main physiological consequences is eventual from a state where you're just overworking the left ventricle to the point where, where it actually starts to fail. Great. Um, sorry, Sam's probably looking at me going, she's not even listening to me and I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> I'm desperately trying to keep my dog from barking. <laughs> Oh, crying at me. Um, she's been a guest on the podcast a couple of times, Sam. The, the <laughs> listeners are aware of uh, Disruptive Darcy. Well, that works, doesn't it, actually? Um, okay, so we've alluded to some risk factors. So what are the risk factors for aortic stenosis? So... By far and away, the biggest risk factor is age, is that as, as people age, they will be more prone to developing aortic stenosis. And the, the estimated point prevalence uh, in patients over the age of 55 is about 1.5%. One, one so that's about you know, 1, one in 100 people over the age of 55 will have um, some form of aortic stenosis. And um, the, as, I, as I mentioned, the other risk factors are, uh, often relating to the typical cardiovascular risk factors that we see very often in uh, vascular vascular path patients, as I'm sure uh, your listeners often see on the vascular wards there, diabetic, high lipids or hypercholesterolemia, hypertensive. Um, they may or may not be smokers, but it's that um, it's that constellation of cardiovascular risk factors which often will feed into the risk of developing aortic stenosis. And then there's two quite specific subgroups, um, one of which is the population of pa patients who have bicuspid aortic valves. Mm -hmm. And quite often, the sort of rule of thumb, which I often teach um, juniors about on the cardiology wards, is that typically you'd expect your tri-leaflet AS patients to develop severe aortic stenosis between sort of in their 70s and 80s. With a bicuspid valve, that reduces in, into their 50s and 60s. You're much more likely to get severe disease at younger ages. And then there's a, a subset of patients, and I have to admit, I've never seen a patient with rheumatic aortic stenosis, but they are meant to get aortic stenosis at, at much younger ages, even as, as young as in their 40s. Mm. But as I say, it's extremely rare. I've never seen it myself, but it's probably one for the, you know, the bottom line of your uh, spiel as you're speaking to the examiner. Yeah. Um, so how do they present? <laughs> sure. So 
they, they can present in a number of ways, and there's, there's a typical triad of symptoms that patients with aortic stenosis get. And often it's, uh, so it's, so number one is angina. So it's chest pain on exertion, and it should be reasonably predictable. And in the same way as that coronary artery disease is, is reproducible with a certain amount of exertion, and then as the disease progresses, they may find that they are walking less and less distance as they start to develop chest pain or chest tightness. And then feeding into that as well, as the as we discussed, that as the left ventricle starts to fail, some of them can develop symptoms of heart failure. So as well as their exertional chest pain, they may also get exertional breathlessness, and uh, and that may come with leg swelling and other signs of, uh, of heart failure as well. And then one of the other um, uh, symptoms which I see, which I see less common, but it does happen occasionally is that they present with blackouts and that's often associated with arrhythmias which develop as a result of aortic stenosis. So those are the main three. So angina, heart failure symptoms and syncope are the three main symptoms of AS. Would, would syncope be more of a severe end of the spectrum? Um, <laughs> a severe end of the spectrum for um, presentation? No, I, I wouldn't necessarily say no? so. I would. No. I think it's. It, it, I don't know whether I'm. I mean, we just see so much severe aortic stenosis. That yeah. it's, I mean, to be honest with you, the more I see more patients presenting with heart failure, but then I I know that I'm probably seeing the thin end of the wedge. That we tend to see the more yeah. complex severe LV impairment with severe aortic stenosis. So, from my experience, not not particularly, but. Yeah. Um, Often patients who present with syncope or transient loss of consciousness will have an echo as part of their workup, and you know it's, it's not a surprise if someone's yeah. heard a murmur on examination and, and someone's had the syncope episode that you end up seeing that they've got uh, at least you know moderate aortic stenosis, which yeah. might be feeding into that presentation. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you've you've alluded to some, um, and so we've talked about heart um, failure signs. So. And um, I guess we've probably also touched on most of the of the other signs that you're going to get. But should we do a quick fire? What are the signs of aortic stenosis on examination? Yeah, sure. So, like we've talked about, the main sign is going to be the murmur, and yeah. and that's best heard at your upper right sternal edge and it's it's often described in in textbooks as a crescendo decrescendo murmur so i'm going to get my beatbox out again so it's <laughs> so it's like a it's like a like that so it's sort of up and down in in timbre yep is that right <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll go with that <laughs> um, and typically textbooks will tell you it radiates to the carotid and, and that is true a lot of the time so the murmur is going to be one thing, and what I would say is, uh, we'll come on to markers of severity in in a moment as well. But one mm. thing which, if your listeners are able to listen out for, is is uh, an audible or a silent S two, so the second heart sound. Okay. So if you can detect a well heard S two, then we uh, now nothing's one hundred percent, but it's less likely to be very severe aortic stenosis. It's actually, when, when you have a silent second heart sound and you actually can't hear it, 
there's there's often such restricted uh, movement of the valve that almost the the leaflets uh, they're they're almost not even really coming together anymore right. because the movement is so restricted. So when, if you have a silent S2, that's a marker of severity. Yeah. And the next marker of severity, which again is something very difficult to describe, and it was difficult to describe when I spoke to a TAVI consultant on my podcast, <laughs> is a slow rising pulse. Mm. It's, it's very difficult to describe, and it's much uh, easier to... Beatbox? Um, it's much easier to, uh, um, to feel than it is to describe. So imagine if you're... When you usually feel someone's pulse, it's a, it's a discreet sort of tap on your wrist as you're, as you're doing mm. it. But as you're feeling but with the slow rising pulse imagine that the pulse is almost like doing the worm across your fingers it's almost like rolling over the surface of your fingers mm. rather than a discrete um a discrete tap which you might get with any other normal pulse that's mm. the, probably the best way i can describe a slow rising pulse is that it sort of just rolls across your fingers in sort of a languid uh slow sort of fashion and Lastly, in, in very severe cases, you may also have a diastolic murmur of aortic regurgitation. And that oh, okay. is essentially, the valve is so calcified and restricted to the point where it's barely moving. So not only do you have obstruction to flow, but it's actually not even closing either. And yeah. then you're having regurgitant flow through the valve as well. Okay. Other, other less, uh, less significant signs, which I wouldn't hang your hat on, but it would be mm. interesting if you did uh, note them, a parasternal heave. Again, I don't know how much you would be expected to detect that. That's just that one of those things you say in an exam, isn't it? Sure. doesn't really exist. <laughs> I understand completely. One of the things which you may notice, which is pretty much the last sign I was going to mention, is, is if you have a particularly pale patient or a patient who has conjunctival pallor, you, AS can be associated with angiodysplasia of the gut mm. called Hade syndrome. So if you have an anemic patient, it's, it would be, you know, pretty bold to say that I noticed this patient is pale, yeah. she's, uh, she's anemic, she's got conjunctival pallor, and I'd be concerned about Hayes syndrome or angiodysplasia of the gut associated with aortic stenosis. That would be a, um, surely an extra point. <laughs> surely. Yeah. You don't have to finish this station, you have passed. <laughs> okay, so we've worked out that this patient has a murmur. Um, now you have to decide what to do. You're still, in, you're still in your clinic. So before you can sign them off to theatre, what investigations are you going to need to request for this patient and who do you think the pa patient needs to see? The only real investigation worth doing in a patient with a murmur is, is an echocardiogram, a transthoracic echocardiogram. That's going to give you your uh, LV function, it's going to give you your uh, valve structure, it's going to tell you so much information and mm. lots of technical mumbo-jumbo which we measure when we do uh, echoes on these patients and a lot of them we use to quantify the severity. So, I mean, obviously you're going to do your routine blood tests, pre-op, routine bloods, etc. But really, you know, you're, you're going to want to get an echo as soon as. Yeah. Um, an ECG may, may be indicated, uh, but again, it's not going to ex explain the murmur for you. Yeah. And and who should they see? Do they... Well, I was going to answer the question, but... Well, is it just the anaesthetist, or would you expect to see, or do you see these patients pre-op as well? So, we don't often see 
it, I, I honestly say it would depend on the outcome of the echocardiogram. Yeah. So if, if the echo comes back with severe aortic stenosis, they would expect us to probably, depending on the op, but they would probably expect us to want to manage that definitively first if they deemed it would be um, a higher risk than benefit for the for the operation that yeah. um, that they're scheduled for. So I, we do see patients pre some operations, but then um, the the issues we have nowadays is that the workup and waiting list for aortic valve replacements, whether surgical or otherwise, are are very long, and mm. so um, it would have to be a, a significant. Uh, risk operation in order for us to have to want to sort out their aortic valve first because yeah. it's not a short road doing that at the moment. Yeah, as with any operation, I think at the moment. Um, okay, so you mentioned ECGs, and obviously, as you said, they're not going to give you all the information you need to know. But what would we see on an ECG in the context of aortic stenosis? So, as I mentioned before, sometimes you can see um, evidence of left ventricular hypertrophy, which is reflected as left axis deviation. And um, pretty much, that that's pretty much all you might expect to find. But there are things that we look at as cardiologists when thinking about working these patients up for their um, surgical or um, transcatheter aortic valve replacements. And one of those things is conductive uh, conduction disease. So, whether they've got a degree of... Uh, heart block most patients will have a degree of first degree heart block particularly left bundle branch block as well and the reason for that is when patients undergo their TAVI um, the the valve itself goes very close to the um, AV node and about one in ten patients who undergo a TAVI will need a pacemaker afterwards due to mm. disruption of the AV node so it, the best patients are the ones that already have pacemakers because they don't need to worry about it mm. but actually the, the patients who have evidence of conduction disease, whether that's uh, first-degree heart block or uh, some left bundle branch block, those are the patients where we think, actually, there's a, there's a high likelihood that these guys are going to need a pacemaker in the immediate um, you know, post-procedural period. Um, they still will uh, observe the patient for 24 to 48 hours after the procedure, um, but I've, I've seen uh, plenty of patients post-TAVI end up having a pacemaker for that reason. Mm. You're being a nightmare. Oh, I mean, she's got the most beautiful face in the world, but this is... This is oh. <laughs> so she can get away with anything, basically. <laughs> um, okay, so moving on. Um, how is aortic stenosis classified? So aortic stenosis is classified usually into mild, moderate and, and severe. And there's various guidelines uh, you can look at. Um, often when we're quantifying the severity of the valve disease on echocardiography, um, usually I'm using the BSE guidelines for uh, assessment of severity on that. Um, with regards to indications for intervention, which I think we're going to come on to, um, the ESC, European Society of Cardiology Guidelines from 2021 are really fantastic and they've got a brilliant flow chart with uh, basically the, the whole patient pathway through 
from uh, diagnosis of severe AS all the way to um, definitive treatment. So, um, I mean, basic, mild, moderate, and severe, and that's based on a number of different things, which is probably beyond beyond the scope of this, but just for your listeners' interest, if they have any interest left. <laughs> um, uh, the things that we measure during echo is the peak velocity of flow. So um, that's basically the speed of blood as it's flowing through the valve. And when I describe it to patients, I imagine uh, I ask them to imagine having a hose pipe and then imagine putting your thumb over the end of a hose pipe. And, you know, that's often how in the summer we see people watering their plants. Mm. It's the same thing. So the, you've got your thumb covering uh, the hose pipe, which increases the pressure. And as a result, you've got a high degree of flow through that smaller area. Mm. The next thing is measuring the gradients across the valve, and often the mean gradient is, is what we go for. And having a, a gradient above 40 uh, millimetres of mercury is classed as severe. Uh, and, I, and for your interest, the peak velocity is over 4 metres per second. And uh, valve area has historically been used to, um, uh, to look at the severity as well, and typically it's less than 1 centimetre squared. There's a, there's a fourth parameter, which, uh, as I understand, is more commonly used with the TAVI operators particularly, which is called the dimensionless index. And that's the uh, ratio of the velocity through the valve compared to that velocity of blood flow in the LVOT, the left ventricular outflow tract. So if, if you want a shorter answer, it's you're looking at the peak velocity of blood flow, the mean gradient across the valve, the aortic valve area and the dimensionless index can all be used as parameters to quantify severity. And to, to jump ahead a little bit, that a lot of that plays into the indication for surgery, doesn't it? So as you were speaking, I was looking at the answer. So it's those with the, the indications for surgery are to do with valve area, less than one centimetre, gradient greater than 50 millimetres of mercury, and an ejection fraction less than forty percent. Is that right? Have I got that right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I think I think one of the main things which um, you'll you'll find in the ESC guidelines is the presence of symptoms is oh, yes. is, is always always makes it severe. And so um, and often by the time we end up seeing patients, obviously they do have symptoms. Um, and it's important as well to be sure that. The symptoms are actually due to their aortic stenosis and there's mm. not an alternative cause, especially in comorbid patients with COPD, etc., presenting with exertional breathlessness. Sometimes difficult to tease that apart. So, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, by and large, you're, you're pretty much right that if it meets those parameters uh, for quite, uh, if it meets those parameters on echocardiography and the patient has symptoms, then intervention needs to happen. Yeah, yeah. So, so the patients who are for medical management of like mild and moderate aortic stenosis, what, what do you do for them sort of pre-surgery? I mean, a lot of those patients won't actually have symptoms. And if they do have symptoms, it's probably unlikely to be due to their aortic stenosis. And so if they have angina, they're more likely to have CT coronary angiograms or, or invasive angiograms to look if they have coronary disease, uh, which is more likely to be the cause of their angina. If they have... Um, exertional breathlessness then obviously they will have had an echo to look at their um, ejection fraction to see if they have any elements of heart failure but also you know things like pulmonary function tests to look uh, and see if um, whether or not their exertion by exertional breathlessness has another cause mm -hmm. in terms of medical management there's really no um, there's no medications that we typically give to these patients to um, there's nothing that will slow the progression of 
their aortic stenosis and it's uh, the, the mainstay of treatment will just be serial surveillance depending on the severity of their valve disease yeah. and so for moderate uh, moderate disease the guard the guidance is uh, an echo yearly and then for mild uh, it's, it's meant to be two yearly okay so on to a pretty big question i think what are the surgical options for aortic stenosis If you've investigated the patient thoroughly and you are very convinced that their aortic stenosis is the cause of their presentation, there's, there's, there's two main options for ongoing treatment. The first of which is going to be a surgical aortic valve replacement, so open heart surgery, or a TAVI, a transcatheter aortic valve implantation. And really this ought to be a, a heart team MDT decision, and this is often done at pretty much exclusively done at tertiary centres at the moment. And so there's a number of factors which would favour uh, surgery over TAVI. And mostly, uh, all patients under the age of 75, this should really be a default option for them. And the main factors which would favour someone having a surgical replacement would obviously be their lower surgical risk, the younger patient. Um, they, uh, If the aortic annulus is unfavourable for TAVI devices for whatever reason. You do see uh, patients with bicuspid valves undergoing TAVI, although it's an off-label, uh, in, off-license indication for TAVI, but uh, it, is, it is a possibility. But often, as we said earlier, these patients pr uh, present at a much younger age, so they're often more likely to be surgical candidates. If they've got um, concomitant uh, cardiac conditions that may need managing in addition to the aortic valve disease, for example, multivessel coronary artery disease requiring bypass grafting. If they've got other uh, valvular disease, such as severe mitral regurgitation, which, uh, for which they need multiple valve replacements. Um, or alternatively, severe aortic root dilatation, where they might need an aortic root replacement as well. So yeah, it's typically going to be younger patients who are lower surgical risk, who have concomitant uh, cardiac conditions, which necessitate a surgical replacement. Okay. On, on the flip side, when you've got your transcatheter replacement, these are the older patients who are higher surgical risk. They're, they're likely to be more frail. It's really important that they have good femoral access. So if they've got horrendous peripheral vascular disease with um, widespread femoral calcification, in addition to that, um, they're really not, uh, the surgeons are also not fans of porcelain aortas, cardiothoracic surgeons, that is. Um, and other things which would favour TAVI is things like severe chest deformities, which are going to make surgery just technically difficult. Mm. So those are sort of the main differences between patients which uh, would be more suitable for surgery versus those more suitable for TAVI. But the important thing is that it's going to be a, a multidisciplinary team decision. It's going mm. to be a joint decision between cardiologists and uh, cardiac surgeons and, uh, you know, the, and, and obviously the patient. Great. Um, so I think that if you agree, it's probably covered most of the things, I think most of the things we need to know um, to a really good level. So thank you so much um, for that. I do apologise for all my <laughs> interruptions. <laughs> but um, yeah, thank you so much um, for being with us today, Sam. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, and yeah, um, 
Uh, I will be back with you again, uh, lovely listeners, very shortly um, with another episode on I don't know what yet. I've not decided. (laughs) So watch this space. We'll be back. Thank you. Bye-bye. Oh, well, a dim bone, dim bone, dim dry bone.